And we'd like to invite any children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, to be the Children's Church, if they'd like. They can find Children's Church that over here by the piano. Any kindergarten or second graders who'd like to go? But the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1193. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1193. So we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. We've escaped the gravitational pull of chapter 11. After two months in chapter 11 or so, we're now moving again here in chapter 12, studying verses 4 to 13 this morning. Have you ever wondered if God was punishing you? That's one of those questions pastors get from time to time. People come, Christians come, and and they say, you know, Pastor, I I wonder, is God punishing me? And usually it's a question we ask when we're beset with trials like we just sang about. And it doesn't take a lot of trials before we begin asking that question. Um, Sometimes it comes because we've been through some sort of extended, chronic difficulty, you know, a, a layoff from a job, and we're... We keep waiting and waiting and waiting and the weeks turn into months and and the months are getting closer to a year and then we're wondering like, you know, what's happening here? Is uh, is God punishing me? Why why won't he intervene in this situation? I've been praying. I mean, I don't, am I, did I do something wrong? Am I getting zapped? I mean, there was that speeding ticket six months ago, but is that what this is about? And we start racking our brains to try to put together the cause and effect of it. Uh, other times we start feeling that because there's a whole constellation of troubles that beset us all at once. So, you know, within a three or four week span, you, you know, you lose a job and you lose um, some family member and you lose your dog and you lose your cell phone. And, you know, it's that cell phone that pushes you over the edge and you're just like, I must be being punished by God for something that, that I did and I said. And so, so that's the question, you know. Are we being punished by God? Is God punishing us? And here today we come to this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that I just find so incredibly helpful for thinking through and understanding trials and suffering and difficulty for us as Christians. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do this morning is give us a different way of interpreting difficulty as Christians. And he wants us, instead of seeing it as punishment or something like that, he wants us to understand our trials as discipline. As discipline from a loving Heavenly Father toward His children for their good. So let's read the text. It's Hebrews chapter 12, and let me just read it. It's verses 4 to 13. The author of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And... You have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? 
Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Well, before we dig into this passage, it might just be helpful really quick to remember where we are in Hebrews. Because as I said, we spent just about two months in Hebrews 11. And sometimes you can get so close and into the nitty gritty that you sort of forget the big picture. Remember, the book of Hebrews was written by someone, we're not sure who, uh, to a group of Christians that the author knew. And these Christians were in danger of going uh, weak in their faith. They were in danger of kind of giving up, packing it in. They were being pressured by uh, hostility in the community around them. They were tempted by sin. And so their faith was weak. And in the middle of the Christian marathon, they're thinking about just giving up and going under the ropes and leaving the race altogether. So, So this letter was written to encourage these Christians to keep going in their faith. So it's really a letter about perseverance. And the primary way that the uh, writer of Hebrews wants to encourage these Christians is by making them refocus on Jesus Christ. Jesus as the great Son of God. Jesus as the great High Priest. In fact, we see that here. We just studied chapter 11. You know, what's chapter 11? It's an encouragement to keep pressing on, being faithful and not giving up. We have this long litany of Old Testament heroes. And the, the whole message is, hey, look at these people in the past. They went through struggles, they were harassed, they went through difficulty, and they kept persevering in their faith. And so he concludes in chapter 12, verse 1, if you look there, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we've got all these Old Testament saints sort of around us in the stadium, cheering us on, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's... See, there's that theme. Keep pressing on. Get rid of all the sin and all the junk that's holding you back and keep running for Christ in your faith. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Again, Jesus is the focus of the book of Hebrews. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus persevered. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that phrase at the end there, grow weary and lose heart, I think that's the problem, that the, the primary problem the book of Hebrews is trying to address. Christians who are growing weary and losing heart. And so this call is keep pressing on, keep pushing on with your faith. And now then in verses 5 to 12, it's the same goal, which is to encourage Christians to keep pressing on, but he's like, he's going to change tactics. And he's going to try a different approach. And it's like, if that didn't work, well, let me try a different image. If the race thing didn't work for you, well, how about this image? And he's so he's coming at them from different angles, trying to keep them going forward in their faith. And now he changes the topic to discipline. And he's saying, look, you've got to see your sufferings and your trials, not as punishment, not as God abandoning you, but as discipline. So again, look at verse 5. Here's our text. You have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. 
because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So basically, the author of Hebrews lifts Proverbs 3 up and he says, look, guys, you forgot what this text says. When you're going through trials as a Christian, you're being disciplined by God because he loves you. You have to think about your sufferings and your difficulties in a completely different way. Uh, If you go to the book of Proverbs, we studied Proverbs like a year ago, I think. And discipline is a big theme in Proverbs. That's a major message of Proverbs, that, that one of the key jobs we have as parents is to discipline our children. We have to do a lot of things as parents, and one of them is, is we're called to discipline them. It's one of the, the privileges we have. Discipline is, um, discipline is inflicting discomfort upon somebody in order to train them and, and benefit them. So it, it's not pleasant. Discipline's a difficult thing. And the assumption in Proverbs and in the Bible is that the number one person God has put in a child's life to do that is the parents. The parents have the authority and the calling of God to inflict limited discomfort into the lives of a child to help train them. Not to be mean or nasty, but to help teach them and shape their behavior and character so that they turn out good. And so that's a major theme of Proverbs. If you love your kid, you will discipline them. So then the writer of, uh, uh, in Proverbs then, they take that idea and they apply it to God and they say, God is our Father. And so when things are happening to us that are uncomfortable and difficult, you have to understand that as God lovingly disciplining His children because He's trying to shape us and mold us and guide us. Uh, maybe it would be helpful to kind of contrast discipline and punishment. I mean, that would be sort of a helpful thing. Uh, discipline as a concept and punishment as a concept. Because I understand, too, that we use those words interchangeably sometimes. In fact, they're used interchangeably in this translation in verse 6. You know, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And sometimes when you're disciplining your children, you say, hey, I'm going to have to punish you. But, but I, I'd like to distinguish discipline and punishment as concepts. And discipline, the thing about discipline is it's fundamentally educational in nature. Discipline at its core has a pedagogical thrust to it. It's a training and shaping thing. The reason someone goes through discipline, whether you know being spanked as a kid or whether uh, you're in a, a sport and your coach says, no, run another lap, and you're like, I'm going to throw up. Run another lap. Why, why is that discipline taking place? Uh, you know, it's, it's to shape us and mold us. You know, in that sense, really, think about it. Even listening to a sermon is a kind of discipline. And you're like, you're telling me. But I mean, seriously, it is. You got up early. You didn't sleep in. You're sitting in hard pews. You're focusing your mind to listen and to follow an argument. Why are we doing that? Well, to train ourselves and to grow in our relationship with Christ and become more like Him. So discipline is very educational in nature. It it has a broad meaning, not just sort of the punishment kind of dimension of it, but, but all kinds of education and training. Punishment, on the other hand, as a concept, really doesn't care about education, whether it happens or not. The primary goal of punishment is retribution for a wrong done. So when they sentence Bernie Madoff to 150 years in prison at age 71, the purpose was not primarily educational. They weren't like, you know, we really hope by this that Bernie Madoff will become a more you know, ethical investor in the future. It's like he doesn't have a future. He's done. 
you know, he's going to die in prison. That, that's punishment. That, that's just the execution of judgment. And, and so discipline comes out of love, whereas punishment comes out of wrath and a commitment to doing the right thing and setting things right. Um, think about it this way. Discipline is what God does to his children. Punishment is what God does to his enemies. And so even though on the outside they look the same because they involve discomfort and suffering, they radically come from radically different motivations and move toward very different endpoints. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us as Christians is when we go through hardships, difficulties, conflicts, static from people who are harassing us for our faith or for other reasons, struggles against sin in our lives, when we go through all of these difficult circumstances, we need to interpret them as discipline from God, that God is lovingly working in our lives for a purpose as a father. So if you look at verse 7, it says, Endure hardship as discipline. I think that phrase right there, endure hardship as discipline, really is kind of like the summary of this whole passage. If you're in a, you know, I like to underline things in my Bible. I don't know if you do, but I love to underline and make notes. That would be the, that would be the sentence I would underline and say, this is the key message of this passage. Endure hardship as what? Discipline. Go through it with the mindset that I am going through discipline from a loving parent. That's how you're supposed to interpret it. Um, so, so don't go through it. You know, you've got to take off the goggles. Take off the punishment goggles and put on the discipline goggles. Take out the self-pity contact lenses and put on the discipline contact lenses. Uh, get rid of the angry at God interpretation where we shake our little fists. Why can you do this to me? How dare you? You know, and, and instead say, no, no, he's my father and he has a purpose and he's good. Even though I don't fully see it and this is painful, God has a purpose. He's disciplining me. And so this is really a call. I think this passage is about interpretation, how we interpret our lives. And it's a challenge to interpret our lives differently than we would instinctively interpret things. We interpret the difficult circumstances in our lives by getting angry, by blaming people, by becoming bitter, by becoming despairing and hopeless. And the author of Hebrews is like, there's a different way to look at it. Look at it as discipline. And the great thing about discipline is there's hope. Discipline is full of hope. So what he does then, if you look back at the text, in the rest of verse 7 down to the end of the chapter, he teases out the implications of what it's like when you put on the discipline glasses and take off those other destructive lenses. He says this is what's going to happen. When you start seeing the, the challenges you're going through as discipline, he says it's going to change the way you look at your life and it's going to have these, these consequences. And there's three of them there, I think, as I was sort of analyzing. I sort of saw three. I don't know why preachers tend to see threes. I mean, it's just kind of an occupational hazard. But I saw three of them there legitimately. And uh, there's sort of three implications or ramifications of what happens when we interpret our suffering as Christians as loving discipline from a loving Heavenly Father. And the first one is this. Here's the first implication. Is that our sufferings will confirm to us that we are God's children rather than making us think that God has abandoned us. See, when we go through difficulties, our temptation is to think God is not paying attention to me. God has left me. God has moved away. 
Whereas instead, we should say, no, no, if I'm a Christian, I'm going through difficult things, God is actually coming close. I love that, that first line of the song we sang this morning, that new song, When Trials Come. And I, I love that song. And, you know, in the pain, our God draws near. God is coming near in the pain. He's active. It's very hands-on parenting. Look again at verse 7. It says, God is treating you as sons. So discipline demonstrates sonship. For what son is not disciplined by his father? You know, if you're a child of God and he loves you, he's a good parent and he's going to be very hands-on with you. Sometimes his hands pinch. But he's hands-on. And he has a purpose and he's actively involved in our lives. Again, going through a trial doesn't mean that God has taken a step back from you, but that he's drawn in closer and that he has a purpose and that he's like, like a master surgeon uh, making cuts and adjustments to us to change us and to shape us for our good. It, it proves that he loves us, which is kind of a funny way of thinking about it. But as Christians, it proves our sonship. In contrast, verse 8, on the other hand, If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. So it just sort of flips the whole thing on its head. We think if everything's going great, God must be happy with me. And if things are bad, God must have left me. He goes, it's just the opposite. He says, when you're going through trials as a Christian, take it as a sign that God is actively involved in shaping your life. And if there's no trials and everything's smooth sailing for your whole life, you should be nervous. Because it means maybe God has just kind of let you go. And he's like, well, whatever, have a good life because it's going to be short and then, there's, then that's it. You know, so it, it, you know you, so I don't know if some of you uh, have worked with children or if you have children and, and they have friends come over and uh, you want to discipline them sometimes, but they're not your kids, so you can't touch them. You know, and my, friend, my, kid, my son or my daughter will bring a friend over and it'll be the first time we met this kid and the kid is just rude and mouthy and fresh and obnoxious and you know the kid will say things to you and you know I'm just thinking if you were my kid I would smack you you know it's like you said that to me so so what do you do you you punish your kid in front of the other kid is what you do you're like you know they, they got involved in some mischief and so you look at your kid and you chew them out and you you know, give them some consequence. And then the kid's like, why are you doing this to me? It's not fair. It's like, I'll tell you why. Because you're my kid. And I don't want you to turn out like that kid. Okay? You see that kid? You're not going to be like that. You're my kid. If he was my kid, I would take, you know, corrective action. But I can't. So he just won't come over again to our house. (laughs) But you, I can take corrective action with you. So it's that discipline that proves that we're God's children. You know, brothers and sisters, don't fall into the mental error of envying the godless because of their prosperity. That's a real trap. To envy the godless because their lives seem great. You know, look at that guy. He doesn't give a rip about God. You know, he talks about Jesus Christ all the time, but it's not the way I talk about him. He's, all, he's just godless, and I know what they do on the weekend, and I know that he's married, and I know who else his girlfriends are, and I know who that person is, and look at them. He's like climbing the corporate ladder. The whole country's in a recession, and he's not in a recession. And that person, you know, has got 
3.5 kids and, you know, one of those poodle doodle noodle dogs and um, <laughs> like a great life. And then you think to yourself, what's the point of following Jesus? If you can live like hell and be blessed with heaven on earth, you know, what's the point? And we become jealous of, of these people. Oh, that's so foolish. You know, what a terrifying... You know what's terrifying is the thought of God just saying to you, you know what, I'm done with you. Go live your life. That's scary. And in the end, God punishes His enemies. There is a day of reckoning coming. You don't want to be in that person's godless shoes if they don't repent on the day when Christ returns. And so that's the first thing that that this mentality does. When you begin to interpret hardship as discipline, the first thing it does is it reminds you that God is actively involved in your life as a father and, and that he's, he's hands-on. He wants to shape you and change you. So it should confirm his love for you, which is a different way of thinking about it. It's kind of funny. And that leads to, my, to the second point here that I see in this passage, which is that it gives us a different attitude toward God then. And rather than being angry or disappointed or frustrated, we become... Uh, very much <clears throat> respectful of God. It gives us the right attitude of respect toward God. And you see that there in verse 9. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more then should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? So enduring hardship as discipline, in that way discipline then demonstrates sonship. And the second thing we see here is that discipline deserves respect. It causes us to respect God. Uh, you know, we do respect our parents eventually for discipline they, they did in our lives. I, had a, a, I know a person I was talking to once, and they were telling me this story about how when they were in high school, they came home uh, from a party one night, and they were totally inebriated, and they drove home. And they came in the door, and, and you know, the parents caught them. They realized the person was, was intoxicated, and they had driven home. And, and man, they dropped the hammer on this kid. They, they said no car. for This is the beginning of the summer. No car for the whole summer. You will not see your friends all summer. You will do work. You will stay in the house. You will not go out. And then the, the coup de grace was they said, and tomorrow you will call your grandparents and tell them what you did. And this person had to get on the phone with grandma and grandpa and tell them what they had done. It's like, whew, that's some serious discipline. But this person, as they were telling me the story, said, you know, I really... I'm happy for what my parents did. I really respect them. They did the right thing. It, it definitely stopped me from a certain path. There was discipline that had happened. And so, in retrospect, the person says, yeah, that was really hard. And there's a part of me that's still bitter at my parents about that. But, you know, I look at it, and in maturity and hindsight, I say, that was good. I respect them, and I'm thankful that they took evasive action in my life in order to deal with something that could have um, grown out of hand. And so if we respect our earthly parents for the discipline they give to us eventually, how much more, the question is, so it's an argument from lesser to greater, how much more then should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? I love that word submit. I think that's the key word in terms of our attitude towards suffering. God wants us to submit to Him in the midst of our suffering. And the submit word, I, uh, well, we don't like the submit word, do we? That just doesn't go well with us. We don't like to submit. You know, kids don't like to submit to their parents. 
Uh, kids don't like to submit to their teachers or to the principal. Wives don't like to submit to their husbands. We don't like to submit to church leaders. We don't like to submit to government leaders. We, we just don't like submitting to one another or to anybody. You know, question authority and all that. And, and it's true. We, we don't want to blindly submit to somebody and sort of check our minds and our consciences at the door. But there's a place for godly submission. And this idea that we're called to submit to God is just a different, interesting kind of idea. But that should be our attitude in the midst of discipline. When we're going through suffering, instead of it's like, God, why me? How come you're doing this to me? I don't understand. You know, what if instead we said, this is discipline. God has a purpose. And so we get on our knees and we say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. This hurts. I'm uncomfortable. But God, I submit myself to you in this suffering. God, teach me whatever it is you need to teach me. Obviously, there are character flaws in me that we all have. God, refine those character flaws. God, if there is sin in my life that I am just not facing, would you purge it through this suffering? And so we submit to God and we say, God, I want to be taught through this. I want to come out of the other side of this suffering more holy and more loving of you and freer of sin and more, more able to glorify Christ with my life and my character. What, what a different attitude to submit to God in the midst of suffering. And I, I find it very liberating, the times in my life when God has enabled me by His grace to submit. It's so liberating just to say, you know what, God, I'm going to stop fighting you. I'm going to stop being angry. I'm just going to go through this and submit to your plan and realize you have a purpose. Which I think brings us to the third uh, effect of, of this attitude that when we, as it says in verse 7, endure hardship as discipline, number one, we then begin to see that discipline is a sign and evidence of sonship, of being a son or daughter of God. Number two, it shows us the attitude that we should have in the midst of it, which is to surrender our hearts and our lives to God and trust Him, even in the midst of things that don't seem to make sense. And then the third thing is, and and that sort of leads into this third one, is that it it helps us to see there's a purpose in suffering. And that's the amazing thing about Christianity, is that it acknowledges the reality of suffering in the world, but it sees purpose in it, not chaos and meaninglessness. And as Christians, we say God has a plan. God has a purpose. What's His primary purpose? To shape us into the image of Christ. Look again, verse 10. He says, Our fathers... uh, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. They did the best they could. No parents are perfect. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in His holiness. I tend to be obsessed with my immediate happiness. God is obsessed with my eternal holiness. God wants to shape my character, whereas I tend to just want to have my problems solved. But God has a longer-term view. You know, God is holy. And if we want to know God and be with God, we have to be holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. So if we're really going to know God and have a personal relationship with Him, as we evangelicals, you know, sort of just uh, say, almost like a mantra, you know, have a personal relationship with Christ, what does that mean? Well, we have to be holy to know the Lord. 
When Jesus died on the cross for us, He died to make us holy. When we come to faith in Jesus, the first thing that happens when you become a Christian is that, and theologians talk about this, they say you're justified. So when you put your faith in Jesus, you are legally, so to speak, forgiven of your sins, and God looks at you as if you've been acquitted in His court. So when you put your faith in Jesus, you're saved, you're acquitted. But then that begins a process of what theologians call sanctification which is the actual becoming holy over your lifetime. And that's the hard part. (laughs) You know, you become a Christian and you're forgiven, but now God wants to change and transform you. And what's one of the most powerful tools that God uses to make us holy? Suffering. You know? We need it to get our attention. I need it to get my attention. And so God allows us to go through difficult things to get our attention so that we'll surrender to Him and say, all right, God, whatever you have to do in me, do it. God, make me more and more into the image of Christ. I love that phrase, that we may share in His holiness. God, why are you doing this to me? Because He wants you to be more like Him so that His glory will grow as will your joy. His glory and your joy as a Christian are inextricably tied together. And the more we glorify Him and savor His glory, the more our happiness is. Real happiness is found in knowing Christ. So, uh, so we're made more and more like Him. God, why are You making me wait so long for this? Why is there no solution? I, I'm losing my patience. And God's like, that's exactly why I'm doing it. So you will gain patience. Just as He is patient with us. God, why have You allowed me to be so profoundly and deeply hurt by people in my life? And the answer is, so you can learn to forgive just as He has forgiven us. God, why won't you make these annoying people go away? I mean, why is this, why do we have to work with so-and-so? Why is so-and-so in my neighborhood or my family or my school? So that we can learn to love the way God loves us. You know, He's teaching us how to love unlovable people just as He has loved us. You know, we want to reach the south shore of Boston for Jesus. But if we stay away from everybody who's not a Christian because we don't like their lifestyle or their belief system or they, they gross us out, then how are we ever going to reach the south shore of Christ for Boston? The south shore of Boston for Christ? We have to be able to love the unlovable, recognizing that the only reason we're Christians is because God loved the unlovable. And so it's, you know, it's all tied up in becoming more like God. We want immediate short-term happiness, but God has a long-term view. You get that in verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. It's always painful to discipline. It's always painful to be disciplined. I've never liked disciplining my kids. I get no happiness out of it. Sometimes I feel like it's a waste of my time. I don't like spanking. I don't like timeouts. I don't like doing those things. It's painful. But why do we do it? Because we have a long-term view. And so God has the long-term view with us. He's looking for later on a harvest of righteousness. And He loves us enough to allow, to allow pain, discomfort, persecution, suffering, trial, struggle, setbacks, disappointments, betrayals, wounding into our lives in order to shape us into the people He wants us to be. But we have to submit to the process. So the conclusion, verse 12, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. 
Keep going. Don't give up. Make level paths for your feet so the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. God wants to heal our hearts, heal our lives as Christians, and He does it through difficulty and through trial. You know, all of this assumes that we are the children of God. That's the assumption this passage makes. But what if you're not a child of God or what if you're not sure if you're a child of God? How do you become? Can you become a child of God if you're not a child of God? And the answer is yes. That's why Jesus came. You know, the way you become a child of God is not by performing rituals in a church or being baptized as an infant or going through some class or joining the Baptist church. The way you become a child of God is by coming to Jesus by faith and just saying, Jesus, you're the only one who can save and forgive me. Jesus died on the cross so that, so that by His blood we could be forgiven and adopted into God's family. No one's born a child of God. We're adopted into His family through faith. And so through faith in Jesus, we become children of God. Because here's what God did. This is so amazing. God sent His Son to die for His enemies so that His enemies could become His sons and daughters. When Jesus died on the cross, He was not being disciplined. He was being punished. And so His punishment, my punishment was on Him so that His sonship could rest upon me. And so there is still room in the family of God. And I would just encourage you to to search your heart. Do you really know Christ? Have you really trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You were punished so that we would not have to be, so that we could be forgiven and could be adopted into Your family. God, I just pray that that You would reveal to all of our hearts where we stand with You. Lord, I pray that we would come to a day of reckoning with You in this life before it's too late. God, I pray that You would just call men and women, even today, to not trust in their own righteousness, to not trust in their own religiosity, but to trust in Christ as their Savior, that they would just surrender themselves to Him. And Lord, I pray this morning for brothers and sisters who are going through trials, who have long-term disappointments in their lives, who are, who are under, a, under a hailstorm of painful circumstances. God, I just pray that You would strengthen them today, that You would cause them to see that You haven't abandoned them, but just the opposite. You are close and involved in shaping them. God, give us a new mindset. Help us to see life through the lens of Scripture. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we come now to celebrate the Lord's table.